From University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. Hello and welcome once again to the weekly podcast, What We Do. I'm your host, Chuck Luce, whose other job here at Puget Sound is editor of Arches, the alumni magazine. Today we are going to talk about microbes, those single-cell organisms so tiny that millions can fit into the eye of a needle. Our guest this snowy morning is our old and good friend, associate professor of biology, Mark Martin. Mark is a microbial geneticist, and also, I think he would be the first to say it, an evangelist for the microbial world, reminding us at every opportunity that if not for microbes, there wouldn't be in us, or most of the rest of what happens here on Earth. Welcome, Professor. It's a pleasure having you here. To start, I have to ask, what's that thing hanging around your neck? Well, I have a friend, Robin Moore, who works in glass. And it's a long and involved story, and you will learn this is very true with me. I'll try and keep the um, logoria too much talking to uh, a minimum. This is a tardigrade made of glass, and what I didn't know is it glows in the dark. And, and can you explain what a tardigrade is? Tardigrades are small inhabitants of the moss and lichen that are pretty much everywhere, but we have them. This is heaven. This is tardigrade heaven outside of our buildings. Tardigrades have been found on every continent, including Antarctica. What they're best known for is the fact that they are uber extremophiles. They can survive, and this expression worries me, naked in the vacuum of space. But the fact is they undergo a process called cryptobiosis where they go into the equivalent of suspended animation. And there are fun links. In fact, if you uh, look up on YouTube, what up death, it's me tardigrade. There's a hysterical video about that that you won't be sorry you saw. It's pretty funny. But they are remarkable creatures and they are kind of in, in, in our popular culture. They're one of my spirit animals because they live through anything. It's one of my tattoos, in fact, is uh, tardigrade. So. The, the fact that they are can be almost immortal is, yes. is very interesting to so. us when we're starting to talk about suspended animation, Absolutely. space travel, needing to go to sleep for a couple of million light years. <laughs> uh, um, do you, can you talk much about how maybe your research might be contributing to this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the most important things, that, and, and I, I have a different way I normally put the pattern together, but I'll answer you more directly. Uh, every living metazoan that is multicellular creature, you, me, sequoia trees, ferns, whatever, every living thing we know about has a co-evolved microbiota with it microbes, bacteria and archaea, that have co-evolved with them over millions of years. You do, I do, everyone does. For organisms like tardigrades that undergo cryptobiosis, the question that interests my lab group is, um, do they take their microbiota with them? Now, no matter what answer we get, it's interesting, because if they don't have a co-evolved microbiota, it's just about the only multicellular creature we know of like that, and if they do take it with them, well, that's just fabulous, too. Why else do microbes rule? Are they bent on world domination? They already did. So I thought you were going to say. One of the, the best mottos you can come up with, and it's true, first evolved, last extinct. There is no environment on this planet without exception that has liquid water that does not have a microbiota associated with it. That means from as high up as you care to go, where there's still liquid water in the atmosphere as deep down as we can drill. I have some colleagues who study 
hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean where the water under pressure is at very high temperatures. That might be an exception, but almost everything. There are microbes everywhere, and they do everything. The very air that you breathe, the oxygen that makes our life possible, is the product originally of prokaryotes, of cyanobacteria in particular. So the, the reason this came up is that if I were to ask, and, and I'll do this right now, when I say bacteria, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Sickness. Sickness. But that's not the case. And in fact, I, I like to tell people that bacteria that cause disease, pathogens, are like the juvenile delinquents of the microbial world. They're very small in number, but they get all the press. And it's really true. If you look at any of the news, they'll say, and this always makes me laugh, uh, bacteria in your kitchen, bacteria in your toilet, bacteria in your purse, whatever it is. And of course there are bacteria there. In fact, while we're speaking, you and I are emitting tens of thousands of microbes right now. I know. And I actually have a wonderful button uh, that says, and it shows two people holding hands, and it says, when we're holding hands, so are they. Uh, look, I have bad effect there, right? But it's true. So part of what I'm doing is PR, microbial PR. And the way this came about was a very interesting story in my own department. Would, would you like to hear it? Of course. So years ago, when I first came to the University of Puget Sound, I was sitting in, around the department. And have you seen the movie Happy Gilmore? I have not. So a lot of times during committee meetings, I go to my happy place. And if you've seen Happy Gilmore, you know about it. It's a place where you can go when things are going on that you can't be involved with or, you know, or make you tired or whatever. So... Two of my colleagues, and they're wonderful people, they both happen to be botanists, were arguing that if we got more funding, what area of research should our next tenure track position be? And they unsurprisingly said it ought to be in plant science because plants are at the center of the biosphere. Now, I didn't clear my throat rudely. I didn't say a dirty word under my breath. I just stayed in my happy place. And the now retired Betsy Kirkpatrick turned and said, well, Mark here, thinks that bacteria are more important than anything else. And, you know, I looked at her and I said, well, I, I, I think plants are very important. It's just that everything really cool that they do, they stole from bacteria and archaea. And then she laughed and said, you, sir, are a microbial supremacist. And I said, yes, I am. And if you've been to the little lab I work with my undergraduates in, that is, in fact, one of the mottos of the lab. So part of what I do is, is teach people, not just in my classes, though that is part of it, to look at a world, and I have a sticker like this. Um, you and I remember who that's supposed to be, Chuck. Janis Joplin, right? And you're looking at the world a whole new way through microbial colored glasses. Oh, microbial colored glasses. Right? <laughs> I and, was going to say Jimmy Page, but that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Same hairstyle, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But anyway, my point is, is that we tend to only look at the negatives that microbes do, and I work really hard to show the positives. And even among microbiologists, you sometimes run into this problem where they come from a medical microbiological background. So they tend to look at pathogens, and I am not putting that down. Humans are really narcissistic, and they're really concerned with things that can hurt or kill them. Me too. But the fact is, the vast majority of microbes could care less about us. They're not angels, they're not devils, they're just meh but they're fascinating. They do pretty much anything. Okay, so if they're, if they're I mean, there are clearly some beneficial microbes for, mm -hmm. for humans mm -hmm. and everybody else, but if there's a bunch of them that are just out there doing yeah. stuff, how do they 
How, how, how do they survive evolution? Well, because they're part of they, it. For they, have example, no they don't have a purpose. Well, of course they do. Yeah. And what's the purpose in all of evolution is to make more copies of yourself. And so I look at the beautiful small amount of snow that we have here, and my wife rolled her eyes, and God bless you, Jennifer Quinn, when I pointed out that the center of every snowflake is a particular bacterium. It's called Pseudomonas syringae. And what it does is lead to ice crystal formation. And in fact, anytime that you go skiing and you go to, quote, artificial snow or man-made snow, it's actually bacterially made snow. It's called Snowmax, and it's made by Pseudomonas syringae. It's hysterical that you bring that up because in my ski bum phase, mm -hmm. one of my many low-paid jobs was <laughs> making, making snow at a ski area. And mm -hmm. we did, in fact, have a can of stuff yep. that we would pour into the water source, and it made more snow. That's what it is. Yep. So you might ask, how does that benefit it in terms of, of evolution? Well, if you think about these bacteria in the atmosphere, and when the ice crystallizes around them, it carries them more distance. Also, these same bacteria live on the surfaces of plants. What happens when you freeze water is that water expands inside. If that's a cell, the cell will burst from the ice formation, and in fact, the bacteria gets lots of yummy goodies. So in fact, there's all kinds of, the, the hand of Darwin is all over the microbial world. Uh, can we go, go back to your blog? Whatever you'd um, like to ask. Let, let's, uh, maybe you can tell us some of the content there. Um, oh it, my it's one goodness. Of the, it's one of the blogs that I look at regularly. Oh, you're very kind. Um, it's, I always learn stuff, uh, but not always about science. Oh, well, sometimes I, I, I mean, rarely I talk about, you know, personal issues, of course, and, but mostly I talk about my experiences with education um, and working with students in the laboratory, both for freshman biology and for my uh, upper division microbiology course. And in the fall, I'll be teaching a course in, on symbioses and parasitism, as I've been doing for freshmen, but now that'll be up for junior and senior level. I'm glad you brought that up about uh, teaching. Um, you've got some pretty cool projects for these kids, some of which we have reproduced in oh, yeah. the magazine. And thank uh, you for that. <clears throat> uh, uh, can you tell us about some of the, the uh, extracurricular projects or extra credit projects that uh, your students are working on? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are different styles of learning and different styles of knowing. I'm not going to turn this into a learning style and teaching style issue, but I have found that students will say things to me like, I can't memorize, but they know the lyric of every Beyonce song written. So yes, they can memorize. Um, so I thought, what could I do to get them engaged and involved with the process? And I want to look at the juncture between science and art as much as possible. This has been, I've been doing this for a lot of years, and it's become you know, very exciting to a lot of people nowadays, which is great. But I've been doing it for some time, and what I have found historically, sometimes students who might not do as well as they might on a given exam really get the material that they're engaged with. In my lab, I have a lot of the artwork posted up on the walls, and there was one young woman a few years ago who had a lot of trouble in freshman bio with central metabolism, and I offered this opportunity, and, and I scaffold the assignment. It's not like, just do something artistic, booby. It's not like that. You have to come up with a specific thing you want to do, discuss it with me, so I make sure it's A, not too much work, or B, not too little work. Tie it into concepts in class. 
And this student put together the game of life that I played as a kid, only it's about metabolism. Now the reason I bring this up is that student nailed every single question to the wall about metabolism because putting that game together really got her to understand that. So when, when, it, when it comes to thinking about how we present material mm -hmm. to students, you're using that, that old thing that they taught all teachers, that there are various learners. Some mm -hmm. are visual learners, some are oral learners, some mm -hmm. are tactile learners. Yeah. And we, we put all this together. Um, and you've come up with a, lo a lo many different cool projects for them mm -hmm. to do. Could, could you describe some of those? Um, I've had students that make song parodies. They took Pharrell's Happy and made it about the cell cycle. And what was interesting about that is the young lady who did the singing had a fabulous voice, but she was so quiet in class. I have had students put together videos about antibiotic resistance. Uh, I have had many students paint. Um, and you, they have painted in traditional ways. They have also painted <laughs> in... I, I have had students paint with bacterial pigments. Yes, I've had students do uh, art where the art is living art. The bioluminescent painting. Yes. That may be a little bit hard to conceptualize uh, on a podcast like this. Uh, uh, we did it visually in the magazine. Uh, your students drew things on Petri dishes. Yes. Uh, we crammed them in a closet. Uh, <laughs> Ross went in with his camera. And with that many people in such a small space, within about 10 minutes, it was 5,000 degrees in there. I remember all that pretty well. Maybe you do too. I do. Um, but uh, perhaps you could talk more about the the process for doing this. It's not like you you, you go and and buy a tube full of bioluminescent things no. that you can paint somewhere. No, I mean the, the the bacterium that I like to use is called Photobacterium lignothi, and it was isolated in Kaneohe Bay, in Oahu in Hawaii, by some friends of mine, and it's super duper bright. So imagine I have a small flask of a liquid culture of these bacteria. And on the simplest way, imagine I take a Q-tip, I dip it in there, and then I paint any design I want on the surface of this Petri dish that allows the growth of the bacterium. By the next morning, and you have these wonderful, you know, lines and letters and artwork made of, like, glowy fire. And it reminds me very, very much of, of um, William Blake, um, William Blake, the poet and engraver, used to say that he would open up religious books and particular sentences would blaze. Now, if I saw that, normally I would like call my therapist that I saw that. But I do see that when I go into the dark room with what my students have done. And the last couple of years in my microbiology class, I have a little competition where I have them paint whatever they want that illustrates something that is exciting to them. And we have a vote in the class. And, and this year, I opened it up to social media to vote. It really increases enthusiasm. And secondarily, it really drives home certain points about microbes not necessarily being bad at all. But but there's there's also, in addition to the art, I mean, there's also science. In yes. This. I mean, you, you can't just hope this stuff is going to grow. Culturing it takes some expertise, does it not? Well, sure. And, 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 you know, it's funny. I've had some people try and use my strains and had a little bit of difficulty with it. And I realized that over the past, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, but it's not that hard to grow. A lot of it is just um, kind of knowing, 
I, I hate how this sounds. I'm kind of like the microbial whisperer, right? I mean, I can, I can kind of sense what they want. There was a scientist named Barbara McClintock who won the Nobel Prize. She studied mobile DNA in plants. And the uh, biography that was written of her was titled A Feeling for the Organism because she seemed to have kind of an, an innate ability to kind of sense the strategies that her plant, corn, was using. And I think for my microbes, I, I, I kind of have like an innate feel for how they do things. Um, I could teach you how to grow it. It's not difficult. And I certainly have spread that around. I don't, I, that sounds bad when you talk about bacteria, yes. I have distributed these microbes to other educators from time to time. But there's, there's nothing scary or awful about them. Uh, so in addition to those bioluminescent bacteria, what other microbes have been catching your interest or your students' interests lately? And I've long been interested in predatory bacteria. These are bacteria that pursue and consume other bacteria. And I have two types that I'm studying in the lab. And I have student projects involving that. A good example of is the one that I study called Dello Vibrio. Now, Dello is really bad Latin for leech, and Vibrio means curved, so it's the curved leech. It's about a quarter of the size of E. coli. And uh, where if you don't have every machine that goes ping, if you know your Monty Python, um, I do have a lot of really bright students. And we've gotten quite interested in the metabolism of Della Vibrio when it invades other bacteria. In addition, some people think it can be used as a living antibiotic to go after certain pathogens. So Della Vibrio was isolated from the soil and is actually not very easy to work with. Another organism I study is called Ensifer, and that organism is pretty easy to study, and only myself and a collaborator are really looking at it right now. And so that's kind of exciting to ask the questions, how do they find their prey? How do they get their living from eating their prey, as it were? And there are actually quite a few predatory bacteria. And I want to say this uh, very carefully, that the way that science progresses is by three stages. Stage number one is that's really a dumb idea. You shouldn't have brought it up. Stage two is it might work a little bit in the laboratory, but it's not relevant to nature. And stage three is, I said it was a good idea all along. And this has happened over and over again in my lifetime in science. One of my previous students, uh, Michelle Wong, added a fourth stage, which was, and I came up with the idea first. And I've seen that happen too. So uh, I do look at predatory bacteria. I also do work with Joel Elliott in my department and Stacy Weiss on associations between bacteria and other animals or plants. In other words, looking at symbioses. Um, there's a particular lizard that Stacy and I study, and it looks as if the males and the females have different bacteria within them. The idea that we're interested in is whether some of those bacteria are protective toward eggs or offspring, kind of natural antibiotics. Joel Elliott is interested in the wonderful story that we have out here in Commencement Bay. You know, for 100 years, we did lumber out there. And if you go out to Reconciliation Bay in particular and jump up and down on the sand, you'll feel it's bouncy because there's six or seven feet of sawdust. And what happened is the, the uh, water would come in, the seawater would come in, like a big sponge, and then the bacteria would then work on that. And then when it comes out, it generates huge quantities of hydrogen sulfide, which is the aroma of Tacoma, as the saying goes. 
the interesting part is, is that the organisms that Joel and I have found out there are very similar to what you find at hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. So here we have a place where students can not have a deep sea submersible to study these associations, but put on some aqua socks. And very, very few people have looked at it. And so there's been some exciting stuff that, that Joel and his students have looked at that I've been involved with. Finally, um, we're quite interested in tardigrades for the reason we talked about earlier, uh, reasons, and um, it makes me happy. I like tardigrades, so. Because they're funny. Because they're amusing, yes. Uh, um, going back to the sawdust beds, uh, so these creatures are similar, you said, to what's coming out of vents in the ocean. So hydro hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean are interesting because, as you know, for, for decades, people thought the bottom of the ocean was this desert. And they found that these geochemical um, fumaroles were generating a large amount of highly reduced uh, art, um, um, elements, including hydrogen sulfide. Uh, by the way, at like tenfold less than we're seeing here. And they found around them huge numbers of bacteria, and then there were fish and crabs, and all these different, and those gi ginormous tube worms that you've probably heard about. Do we see those out there? No. But what we do see is the same kinds of bacteria that you see around there. And, and th those places in the ocean, we think, are where life began. That's certainly a possibility. So um, there's a pretty interesting connection. I think it's a fascinating one. And uh, again, people just buried the wood waste because they thought, well, you know, there's no oxygen and it's cold. And microbes laugh at that. I mean, they, they, they really, you know, they, they, they don't care. They're like the honey badger. Right? Yeah. They just don't care. Right. And they've been around for, forever. And they'll be, they'll be the last things alive on this planet, I promise you. They were the first things alive on this planet. Okay, speaking of laughing microbes, got any good microbe jokes? So why did the microbe cross the road? To get to the other slide, microscope slide. Oh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh. right. Hey. Well, thank you, Professor. Thank you so very much for coming by. It was entertaining. And can I also say, parenthetically, and from the bottom of my heart, the way that you have allowed and, and kind of promoted what my students do means so much to me. I mean, that's really what we're about at the University of Puget Sound, is looking after our students. And part of that is putting them out front. And they are remarkable young people, and they do fabulous work. And I am fortunate to be here. I do indeed. Thanks again. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes.